The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, in the in-between time before Paul Stevens gets here, we are going to be looking at the book of Revelation and taking a look at chapters 2 and 3 in particular, the seven letters to the seven churches from the book of Revelation. And while doing this, we're going to take to heart the things that Jesus commends within the churches, the ones that he's writing to, and and also we're going to take to heart the things that he condemns. And prayerfully, through our time together, we're we're going to find encouragement, we're going to find places of conviction where we look at the state of our own hearts or the state of the church, and we, we really begin to, to focus in on what Jesus' heart is for the church. And, and I believe that this will be shaping in our understanding of what God is looking for within a congregation of people and within the, his church as a whole. And by looking at these letters written by John the Apostle and instructed by Jesus, it will sharpen our understanding of what, of what Jesus loves to see within the church and what he wants to see change within the church. So today we're going to look at the first of these seven churches, the church at Ephesus. Now as the book of Revelation opens up, we find out that the entire purpose of the book of Revelation is to reveal to us more about Jesus. It is not primarily an end times text, although it does cover the gambit of of history. It is not primarily a theological lexicon, although it does have a great amount of doctrine that is covered throughout the book. It refers to the Old Testament multiple times, and the allusions are to the Old Testament are throughout the book. You have to really be a student of the Old Testament, I think, to study Revelation with any sort of depth. But at the opening of the book, what we find is that the book's focus is not those things. The book's focus is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus himself. And he draws our attention to himself. And throughout the book, you see that Jesus is the continuing, conquering king right up through the very end of history until the new heavens and the new earth. In the end, Jesus wins. That's the point. John, the amanuensis of Jesus, is on the island of Patmos. He was was imprisoned on this island by Rome. And he is the last living apostle of Jesus. All the others have died by this time. According to to Tertullian, John was arrested in Ephesus where he was pastoring. And then he was sentenced to an island, to the island, uh, the island of Patmos, after, first of all, being forced to drink poison, which the poison had no effect on him, so they didn't know what to do. So then they tried to boil him in oil. And uh, that didn't hurt him either. And so they thought, well, what should we do? (laughs) And so they shipped him to this island called Patmos, 
which was a prison colony. It was a place where stone was quarried for the various Roman projects. And the emperor Domitian uh, had him sent there. As the last surviving apostle, John has been proclaiming that Jesus is the king above all kings for his entire life since encountering Jesus. But at this point, being the last apostle, the, the last surviving one, the church is beginning to wonder what his death might mean if John dies. If, if, if there's no one who is alive who had firsthand experience with Jesus, like, what does that mean? And what, what about all this kingdom stuff? And what about the coming king? And, and, and he's going to bring all of the kingdoms of the earth under his rule. And what does that look like? And, 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 and is this true? Is this right? The church is wondering. Will Jesus, the king, really ever set the world right? And Jesus comes to John in a vision on the Lord's day while he's in the spirit and tells John to pick up his pen and write everything down. And when Jesus appears, John describes his encounter like this. Let's pick it up, actually, chapter one, verse four. I just want to read through what it was like seeing Jesus, the risen, glorified, resurrected Jesus from John's perspective. John says, I'm writing to the seven churches, verse four, that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests, to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. That means beginning and the end. Who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea and then I turned to see that voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest and the hairs of his head were white, like, like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. 
and in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen. Those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of these seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So here's what John sees. He's like, I was in the Spirit, it was on the Lord's Day, and I was, you know, in fellowship with God, and then all of a sudden... I heard a voice, and I turned around to see it, and I saw the resurrected, glorified Jesus. He says, hey, I died, but I'm not dead. I'm alive forevermore, and I'm coming again. This kingdom thing is real. He sees the seven golden lampstands, and Jesus has his right hand out, and in his right hand are the seven stars, which are the angels, or possibly the pastors, the elders of the churches. The golden lampstands are the churches. They're the lights. This mirrors Jesus' teaching about how the church, God's kingdom people, would be the light of the world. And, and, And John says, when I looked into his eyes, they were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze that had been burnished in the the furnace. Out of his mouth came a sword. It was a fantastic moment seeing Jesus in this way. His voice was like the sound of many waters. You think about being at the ocean in a, in a really stormy time and how his voice just comes barreling in. The voice of a resurrected and triumphant king. And John is told by Jesus, I have something to say to these seven churches in Asia Minor, churches that you're familiar with, John, churches that you've been pastoring and caring for. And so pick up your pen, John, and write down these words. I, the resurrected, glorified Jesus, have a personal message to these seven churches. And I want you to write it down so that they can hear I'm the one who upholds the angels, the messengers, possibly an allusion to the fact that these are the pastors or elders of these churches. I'm the one who holds them in my right hand. And I am weaving in and out. I am among the seven churches, the lampstands that are standing there. I am in their midst. I see what is going on in them and I have something to say to them. John, write it down. I want them to hear my heart them and Jesus goes on to speak 
to the first of the seven churches, the church at Ephesus. Now, before we dive into his words, I want to give you a little background on Ephesus. Ephesus was on the west coast of Asia Minor. It was made the capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor by Augustus in 27 BC. Ephesus is the setting of Acts 19 in particular, but starts out 18, 19, and then on into 20 where you see the Ephesian elders coming to meet Paul before he makes his way back to Jerusalem. And the elders, when they came to Paul, you could see their deep love for Paul. You you see, Paul had spent two years in Ephesus discipling. He lectured in the hall of Tyrannus and, and taught there, discipled consistently and regularly. And when the elders came and visited Paul, it says that they wept at his departure because he said he wasn't coming back again. He wasn't sure he was going to see them again. The elders there were so attached to Paul that the thought of not seeing their friend again, their mentor, this vibrant leader, caused their hearts to break and they wept on the shore. They knelt down and prayed and offered Paul to God before he departed. This was the place where Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, that he fought wild beasts at Ephesus. It could be literal. It could be figurative of the spiritual warfare that he encountered there. But it was a, a place of significant conflict. There was a lot that was happening in the ministry at Ephesus. And when Paul founded the church there, there was a lot of work to be done. Ephesus was the third largest city in the entire Roman Empire. Its population is estimated to have been around 250,000 people. So the entire Rogue Valley, when you take the greater metropolitan area of the Rogue Valley, the, the population is around 213,000 people. So that gives you an idea to put into perspective how big this one city was. In that city... The ethnic makeup of the inhabitants were Lydians, Ionians, Greeks. There was a native population of Anatolians and a large Jewish constituency as well. And the habit of Rome was that whenever they took over a city, they would, they would send their, the citizens of Rome to go and live there. It was a way of kind of mixing the cultures together and also protecting the interests of Rome as it continued to expand around the Mediterranean. It was a place of rampant idolatry. There was a lucrative tourist business because it sat at the mouth of a major river and a lot of people could come right into port and there was a lot of trading that happened there and as a result there were two markets there was a giant amphitheater it was a huge place of art and industry and commerce and artisans and among all of the 50 plus false gods that were worshipped the greatest of them was the goddess Artemis who was pictured as a multi-breasted goddess who had power over 
female attraction and fertility. And the worship associated with Artemis was especially abhorrent. It was very similar to a a Vegas-like type of environment or, or you think of parts of LA where art and industry collide and every kind of vice that you can imagine is made available. And so when Paul plants a church in this place, the people that are getting saved are getting saved out of that context. This place where there's, you know, 250,000 people living. A place that has a giant temple to the goddess Artemis where sexual things are happening throughout the city, where every vice is on display, where people are living for money and greed and trade and power. And that's what draws everybody into this place. It's the opportunity to get their piece of the pie. Paul plants this church in this place and immediately great leadership arises. We're told in Acts 19 that not only did Paul stay there and disciple for two years, but also Aquila and Priscilla were there. Apollos was was scooped up in that place and discipled by Aquila and Priscilla. Later on, Timothy would go on to pastor as well in Ephesus. And eventually, the Apostle John himself would settle in Ephesus and pastor in that city as well. And guess who he brought with him? Do you remember at the foot of the cross? Jesus is dying, he looks down and he says to his mom, Behold your son to John. And then John, he says to John, Behold your mother. Well, John picked up Mary and moved to Ephesus. And to this day, there is a a place outside of the city proper where the remains of a house were constructed, where a a house was constructed uh, that housed Mary, the mother of Jesus, as John took care of her until she died there eventually. So the founders of Christianity all eventually kind of made their way into that place. It was a place of strong doctrine, solid teaching, conflict with the culture, deep conviction. It was a very strong place and church to come from. Paul, having started the church, hands it off to Timothy, Eventually, John is their pastor in as well. They have this rich history of very solid doctrine. And so, Jesus writes to this church in that setting, and he says these words. To the angel, the messenger of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the golden lampstands. I know your works I know your works and your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but 
have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and and you've not grown weary. Now, okay, let's pause here for a moment. This is a very famous passage of Scripture. I, I think if you've been around the church for any length of time, you've probably heard this passage ta- and you know what's coming. But I want you to put yourself in the frame of mind of the people who received this letter. They don't know what's coming. It's probably house churches spread throughout the city. Each house church has an elder. Uh, we got this letter from, from John. He's, he's on the island of Patmos. He saw Jesus and, and he wrote us this letter. So here's this letter. And so you're sitting there with your husband or with your wife with your family, your friends, your community. You're like, okay, Jesus wrote us a letter. (laughs) What does it say to the church at Ephesus? You go, that's us. That's us right here. And he starts out and he says, hey, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. You go, oh, (laughs) he sees. He sees it. He knows. He knows how hard we've been working at this. And how you, you cannot bear with those who are evil, but, but you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And you found them to be false. And you, you nudge the person next to you. That's us. Right? He knows. That, like, we, we're excellent at doctrine. We, we heard the teaching. We, we kept the teaching. We, we're, we're policing the people that come in. We're, we're making sure that their, their doctrine is in line with and keeping with the gospel, that the gospel message is not being corrupted. He knows that we're working hard. He sees our toil. He sees our endurance. He knows that we, we've been laboring under persecution, that this is not easy ground to be a Christian in. Being at the center of this place puts us at odds. And, and you, you remember when, when Paul planted the church there, it was, such a, it was a place that was given to such wit, witchcraft and idolatry that when people began to get saved there, they all brought their books of witchcraft and they burned them as a sign of repentance. And the gospel was so powerful and so effective there that it affected the sales of the little mini figurines of Artemis. And the idolatry business took a hit and people were ticked about it. They were upset. And a riot was launched as a consequence of that. You you remember that story? They were in direct conflict with the culture. They had been toiling and laboring, and since the beginning, it had brought them to a a, a crossroad with the culture around them because they so fervently argued for the gospel. There was also a strong Gnostic presence there, which elevated knowledge. And so culturally, they had to be articulate with the gospel. They needed to be able to combat false ideas and and lofty philosophical thinking. It was a tough place to live as a follower of Jesus. And and when Jesus says, "I, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those that are evil, but have tested those who have found them, who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false... 
I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you've not grown weary. 30 years have passed since the time Paul the Apostle was there. And they have kept at it. And so when Jesus says these words, they go, yeah, that's us. We're, we're making it. We're doing it, right? We, we're towing the line. We've been faithful. We've kept the doctrine. They have right behaviors. And they have right beliefs. And Jesus, not in a mocking way, he commends them for it. Matter of fact, you will see through five of these seven letters to the seven churches that Jesus sort of follows this, this pattern. He gives an introduction about himself, a reference to the vision that, that John saw. And then he commends the church for something. He condemns them for something in five of the seven churches. He corrects them, and then he comforts them. He commends, condemns, corrects, and comforts. And this passage here follows that structure as well. And so in verses 1 through 3, Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, you have right behavior, you've endured, you've toiled, you've been patient. You haven't given up. And you've got right beliefs. You, you hold the line when it comes to doctrine. And at this point, everybody is going... Proud moment. Jesus is proud of us. And then verse 4 comes. Now imagine how this hits you. But I, the resurrected, glorified Jesus, who am writing you this personal letter, but I have something against you. That you have abandoned the love that you had at first. You left your love. Now, let me just make a quick clarifying comment. I've heard this passage taught multiple times. And sometimes people will say, you know, you've lost your first love. But that's not what the text says. They didn't lose it. It wasn't like they just woke up one day and were like, well, where'd my love go? He says, you, you left it. You abandoned it. You left, not lost. You left, not lost. You left, not lost, your first love. Now, commentators, as commentators are wont to do, argue about what this means. Some will say that the love that they left was a love for God. Others would say, no, it was a love for one another. They were very doctrinally rigid, and they, they, they grabbed onto doctrines and and began to abuse one another and abuse people around them because they were so rigid in their beliefs. What's right? I, 
to be honest, I think there's good arguments both directions, and so I, I can't give you a solid answer, but I, I know this. One definitely affects the other. And when Jesus says, your first love, their first love was not the experience of loving one another. Their first love experience was the experience of being loved by Jesus. And he says, you, you left it. It got lost somewhere along the way. You walked away from it and, and you forgot about this. Loving me. You, you forgot about loving me. I am the point of the gospel. The point of the gospel was for, for you to come into fellowship with me. For us to be one with one another, that I would be in you and you would be in me, that we would abide together. And, and you've got great doctrine, you've got right beliefs, and you've got right behaviors. And, and, and to be honest, if this doesn't describe American Christianity, I don't know what does. You see, if you ask somebody... What's the point of being a Christian? I, I think most people would say, like, be a good person. Don't be a jerk. That's bad. God doesn't like that. And don't be stupid. Also, something God does not like. And believe the right stuff. And if you do those two things, like, you're, you're a good Christian. That's the measure. According to our particular cultural context, they, they, they might even argue back. Like, well, what else is there? You believe the right stuff and you do the right stuff, then isn't that enough? And Jesus says, no. I have this against you. You have right behaviors and you have right beliefs, but you stopped loving me. You left it behind. And while you still believe the right things and you're still doing the right things, doing them without me was not what I wanted. That was not the point. Your love for me affects your love for people. The love that you experience at the... I just, picture in your mind for just a moment. Just You're the pagan who grows up in Ephesus and you are out at the Agora, the marketplace. You're out there just doing the normal things that you do and you're walking by tables where this multi-breasted goddess is being sold and, and there's all kinds of filth all around you. It was, it, it, it's a sinful, awful place and the shame because of how God has put us together, the sense of conviction that we are doing wrong is something that soaks and saturates your life. This is your daily experience. And one day you're out walking in this, this street and you hear a short little man out there talking. And he's proclaiming things and, and you, something just makes you stop. And you begin to listen and you hear the story of Jesus who is God who came down. And instead of condemning mankind, he offers up his life in exchange for their sins. And you hear the gospel and you think, oh, I am soaked with shame. I am soaked with sin. Surely I've offended this God, but he loves me? 
He loves me and he paid my debt on the cross and I'm, I'm forgiven now as a result. And you heard the gospel and it settled into your heart. You, you were standing there on the street, just tears running down your face as you experienced for the first time the absolute power of the grace of God. Now think about that experience. And Jesus is going to tell them, he's going to say, listen, that thing that you found in the gospel, that thing that was there in the beginning, that thing, that love, is what you've left behind. So I've got some correcting that I want to do. That's the condemnation. You've left that behind. Let's correct it in verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent. And do the works that you did at first. If not, I'll come to you and I'll remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Here's the correction. Remember. Repent. And return and redo. Remember, repent, and return. It's interesting in the scriptures how whenever God wants to illustrate relational brokenness between him and his people that oftentimes he uses the illustration of marriage. In the Old Testament, he uses very, very strong language to talk about his people being adulterous. How they went a-whoring, to use King James language. You see, the relational betrayal against God is a huge, huge deal. It's the standard by which God judged Israel. Remember through Isaiah the prophet how he said, you guys are doing all the right stuff. You, 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 you're doing the sacrifices. You keep the, the feasts and the new moons and the Sabbaths. But he said, honestly, I'm sick of it. I wish you would just get rid of it all. Because while you honor me with your lips, your heart is far from me. Saying, doing, believing the right things, but relationally we're broken. We're not connected. I think every marriage goes through this, this sort of cycle. When you, you first get together, it's hot, it's steamy. You find attraction and closeness and, and there's all of these feelings of affection. And, and, and I think this is a part of the problem is that we equate love with feeling. That, that's a big part of our, our dilemma here. And then over time, life just becomes normal and the feeling sort of goes away. And, and it's in this season where, where the feeling goes away that oftentimes it's easy to drift in your heart from doing the things that build relationship. That love is not something you feel, love is an action that you do. 
And so most marriages start out in that sort of hot, passionate season, and then they have what, what they call the seven-year itch. You guys have maybe heard that. Some of you older folks have heard that before. Younger people, I ask them, and they're like, no, nah, what's that, seven-year itch? That sounds terrible. Is that a medical condition? Is it? <laughs> I'm like, it's close to one. But about the seven-year mark, you, you, you start to to feel the growing gap and distance where you are maybe next to one another on parallel tracks but never intersecting. No longer friends. And it's at that crucial moment you have a decision to make about what you will do in that place. The things that stoked the fires of connection and closeness was all the stuff you were doing at the beginning. And when life became normal, you stopped pursuing, stopped loving, stopped connecting, stopped being friends with one another, and you feel that drift begin to happen. And while you might be in a marriage, it is not what God intended. You might keep covenant faithfulness, but that's not the oneness experience that God wanted for marriage. And, and really, I think there is a clear parallel here. God is saying, look, you believe the right things, you're doing the right things, but we have drifted. We're on parallel tracks, never intersecting. It's not because I don't want to be your friend. It's not because I don't want to be close to you. I always want to agape you. Agape is who I am. That is my nature. This side has not changed. You left your first love. And so, here's my counsel to you. Here's my correction. Remember what it was like. Remember when the tears were streaming down your face and you were in the marketplace. Remember when I chased you down. When I pursued you. Remember when I came to you with my love and I told you about my grace and I told you about my forgiveness. Remember that. Now, the idea of remembering here is not just to recall to mind, but to rehearse here. In the Greek, there's that sort of a double entendre here. To recall and rehearse. Bring it, bring it forward. Bring it back to your mind. Bring it back to the, the, this place right here where, where, you, where you hear my heart for you, where you feel it down to the core of your being. Bring it forward and soak in that. Soak in the gospel. Not just as an idea theologically, but as a present reality of the resurrected Christ that I have loved you. And I have given myself for you. Remember it. Bring it to the forefront of your mind. And then where you have left off, where you have gone astray, what you left behind, repent. Now turn around and come back. Listen, I'm calling you back to me. I don't just want you to believe right things and do right things. I want those things too. But the thing I'm holding against you is that you have left loving me personally. So remember, recall and rehearse, repent, stop, turn around, stop going away from me and begin to come now to me. 
repent, and return and redo. One action. Remember when we were close? Do do you remember that? Remember, Remember you didn't know any doctrine. You didn't know the difference between Genesis and Habakkuk. You didn't have any concept of anything doctrinally. All you knew was that I loved you. That was, that was it. That was the baseline. Remember, remember that? And what, what did you do? How did you respond? Do you remember how you couldn't wait to open up your Bible? You're like, what am I going to discover about who he is today? Remember you loved, you just loved to lift your hands and worship. Do you remember when, when serving me was not an obligation that you did out of duty? It was the joy and the delight of your heart because you just found the love of God so powerful and so meaningful, so overwhelming to the whole of your person. Come back to that. You left it do those things that you were doing at the beginning. Do it again. Become my friend again. You know, for the last few weeks, we, we did a series on spiritual formation where we talk about, you know, spiritual disciplines and, and those kinds of things. But I, I, I don't want you to miss how important this is. The point of spiritual formation, the point of spiritual disciplines is not duty and exercise. The point is relationship. The point is connection. It's finding access points in as many ways as possible where you can bring your heart before the Lord and say, God, have it all. Take all of me. Take my time. I need you more than I need my food. I need you more than I need my stuff. God, I need you more than I need anything else. I need time alone with you. I need need time spent in prayer with you. When nobody else sees, I just need you because you are the treasure. You are the reward of the gospel. I need you. That's the point. And Jesus says, return and do what you did at first. Because if you don't, I'm going to remove your lampstand. Oh, can you imagine how those words hit the Ephesian church? Can you feel the gut punch of that? Look, you've, you've been enduring, you've been toiling, you've been faithful. But if you don't get this thing right, the lampstand, the light, the church that is there, I'm going to take it away. You will have no witness. You will be no light. What's at stake? The loss of light, the removal of the lampstand. And so Jesus says, please come back to me. Please come back. And then he moves in verses 6 and 7 to comforting them. He says... Yet this you have, that you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. There's something else I want to tell you that I I see that you are excellent at. The the Nicolaitans, we don't know precisely what their belief system was, but 
the, the etymology of the word in the Greek is, is really interesting. The, the first part of that, it's a compound word, is nike, which means conqueror, and laity, which means like the common people. And the idea was, is that the, 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 there was this philosophy, of a way of, of, of living that ran so contrary to the teaching of Jesus that Jesus hated it. And it had to do probably with the idea of conquering one another, bringing people into submission through beliefs. Like trying to force it in them, right? People conquerors. Can I just pause here for just a moment? We're We're in the throes of an election cycle. I see flags flying with potential candidates' names on there as though that's going to fix what's broken. It's still going to be broken. November 4th, our country will still be broken. And next November, it will still be broken. And the following after that, it will still be broken because the only time it won't be broken is when Jesus comes to rule and reign. It's not the solution. But people are battering each other with their beliefs, right? Conquering. And even within the church, there's just all this like, no, you got to see it the way that I do. Don't wear a mask. Do wear a mask. You're not loving if you do. You're not... Look, that's not the point. Jesus is king. Love Jesus and love one another. That's the point. Well, He says in verse 6, you you have hated the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Here's what he says in the comforting section. He says, keep listening, keep doing the good, and keep going to the end. Keep listening. If you have an ear, hear. Keep hating what I hate. Keep doing the good that you're doing. And keep going to the very end. And if you do, I will let you eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. There's a throwback to the imagery of Eden and a throw forward to the very end of the Bible where you see the tree of life is present again in the paradise of God. And he says, you're going to eat from that tree and you're going to be in my presence and what was broken at Eden will be restored to greater glory in the new heavens and the new earth. And you're going to be a partaker in that. But endure. In closing, if the worship team wants to come up and and begin getting ready here, I'd, I'd like to say this. Right behaviors and right beliefs do not equal a right heart. Right behaviors and right beliefs do not equal a right heart. At the center of salvation is a person a savior. His name is Jesus. And because of his willingness to die for us on the cross, because of his, his willingness to take and bear the consequences of our sin and, and, and to take the wrath of God upon himself, because of his willingness to do that, he has saved and redeemed a people unto himself. He's made them kings and priests unto God. 
And the Holy Spirit came to live in them so that they might love one another in the same way that he had loved them. And together, the church, or God's kingdom people, worship the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit. Our love for God personally is not, listen, our love for God personally, for the person of God, is not a secondary or tertiary matter. It is essential. And I would say there have been seasons in my life where when my doctrine was falling apart, my personal love with Jesus pulled me through. When God was reshaping beliefs that I had that were out of whack and reforming me, His love for me drew me forward in the midst of that. It anchored me. It's not a secondary matter, it's central. It is the place from which all ministry and witness flow. To give you a quick analogy, it's like having an engine with no oil in it. You can have a perfectly working engine, and if there's not oil in it, the engine, everything else will go wrong. The engine will be destroyed. If there is not love for God and the love of God being received by you, everything that you do in life related to Christ falls apart. Right behaviors and right beliefs do not equal a right heart. At the center of salvation is a person who we love. And maybe today, God might call each of us back once again. And if you've been distant and if you've, if you've found yourself in a season where it's been dry and, and, and you've, you've felt like I'm on a parallel track with God, I haven't abandoned my beliefs in God, I haven't abandoned right understanding of who He is, I'm still doing stuff, I'm still involved in a small group or serving in some way, but perhaps God would highlight to you this morning, but you have left loving me. Come back. Come back. And you can do that now. Or maybe you're sitting here and, or, or you're watching online and, and you, you have never known the Lord. You can come now. He loves you. He sent His Son. The whole reason God, the glorious God who made everything, heaven and earth and molecules and everything that exists, The whole reason he came down in the person of Jesus was to pay for the sins of mankind and to save you. And when he died on the cross, he died in your place. And if you will put your trust in him, and if you'll count on him to save you from... he, He will lift the weight of shame. He will lift the guilt in your life. And he will save you and you will know him as a husband knows a wife. You will know him as a friend. And all you have to do is turn away from your sin, turn towards friendship with God, and put your trust in him and what he's done for you. That's it. It's that simple. God, call us all not just to believe. We want to believe. We want to believe the right things. Not just to do and behave. We, we want to do the things that you've called us to in life. But that's not it alone. Those things flow out of love 
for you. God, would you call us back again and again? Being prone to wonder is not a state in which we were before we got saved. It's a state in which we live. So keep calling us back, Father. In Jesus' name.